Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the Liberals embrace the Great Reset they told us was a conspiracy theory, facts and COVID coverage, and Elections Canada's blow against press freedom. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. We are hitting the reset on another episode of the program. Perhaps it will even be a great reset. Who the heck knows? In any case, my thanks to you all. This is a big week if you are paying attention to the world that the global elites are trying to create for you because this is the virtual Davos Agenda Summit put on by the World Economic Forum. Normally, all of the elites and world leaders would be hobnobbing in the Swiss Alps, but right now they have to slum it by doing it on Zoom because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But nevertheless, the Davos Agenda this week aims to put forward the the Great Reset Initiative. It is, according to the World Economic Forum, the official launch of this Great Reset Initiative that purports to create a new form of capitalism and take advantage of the fact that the pandemic has just devastated the economy to rebuild the world in the image that people like Klaus Schwab and the UN and all of these other organizations and individuals tend to want, a world that they have not yet succeeded at putting into place without the pandemic. The problem is that people on the left insist that it is a conspiracy theory to talk about the Great Reset, even though it's the name of a book and it has its own website and the World Economic Forum is entirely proud of the Great Reset Initiative. This is what came up when Justin Trudeau indicated that he wanted to uh, partake in a little bit of a reset. Remember this? This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges like extreme poverty, inequality, and climate change. And then, of course, people like Conservative MP Pierre Polyev rightfully draw attention to it, point out the similarities between Trudeau's reset rhetoric and Klaus Schwab's reset rhetoric, and then Trudeau accuses them of peddling conspiracy theories. The difficult moments we're in, it's Nice to be able to try and find someone to blame, something to point to, something to get mad at. I think uh, we're seeing a lot of people fall prey to disinformation. And if conservative MPs and others want to start talking about conspiracy theories, well, that's their choice. Well, if that's the case, the conspiracy has certainly thickened because this week, Christian Freeland and Patty Haidu are among the vaunted speakers of the World Economic Forum's Davos agenda. Yes, the two Canadian cabinet ministers are actually speaking part of this week of events that aims to launch the Great Reset Initiative. Christian Freeland is speaking about stakeholder capitalism, and of course, Patty Haidu is speaking about restoring cross-border mobility. This is the woman who said that border closures are racist and don't work, and then went all in on closing the Canadian border, which will have been closed for coming up on a year quite soon. And then she's the one that they want to speak about reopening the world, which I'll just let you take from that what you may. But the problem is, while everyone who's everyone is speaking at the Davos agenda this week, the keynote speaker, the person who kicked things off was none other than Chairman Xi. 
Yes, Xi Jinping spoke and actually tried to double down on the globalization and globalism that so many people are critical of in the World Economic Forum's mandate. And he actually took aim at the arrogant isolationism. He didn't call out Donald Trump by name, but you could tell it was an attack on Trump and said that we need to go down even further the road of multilateralism and globalization and the UN-led international order. And he called for adoption of the UN Agenda 2030 and other things like this. And if you watch the whole speech, it's not something that really aligns with the China that we all know. But there's something very revealing in this. China knows it's running the world right now. China knows that this world order, which is not a conspiratorial term, that's actually what it is here, is working to its benefit. The liberal capitalist free market world order that was created by Western governments is something that China has been able to manipulate and maneuver its way into a great deal of success with. So why would China want to mess with it? China's investing right now about a trillion dollars in the so-called Belt and Road Initiative, which is actually putting Chinese money at the forefront of development in, I think, like close to 100 countries. It is China's world, and we are just tenants in it right now. So when Klaus Schwab is heaping praise on Chairman Xi, and Chairman Xi is talking about the need to go further down this road of international multilateralism, and then the Secretary General of the UN comes on a couple hours later, Antonio Guterres, and says the same thing, and then later on in the week, we've got Patty Haidu and Christian Freeland that are all a part of this. How are Canadians supposed to stand for being accused of spreading conspiracy theories to talk about the fact that there are people that are trying to manipulate the world into this form of a reset. Hidden in plain sight does not even begin to describe this. This thing that is actually a source of pride for some of these international elites that we are being told we're not allowed to even talk about, let alone call out. Now, this is not just some shadowy cabal of, of people that are sitting in some cave in the Swiss Alps deciding how the world is supposed to be structured. These are people who actually have leadership positions in countries around the world, like, for example, Christian Freeland and Patty Haidu, who are on the front lines of the government's response to COVID-19 and any number of other areas, and these are the folks that they're hobnobbing with. And Christian Freeland knows these people very well. One of her great claims to fame before she entered politics was literally writing the book on the Davos elites, immersing herself in this world. And it's hard to imagine looking back that this was done with a journalistic eye when now she is one of the very people that she was writing about in her seminal work. And again, I mean, the topics that Haidu and Freeland were talking about were relatively banal. I mean, stakeholder capitalism, whoop-de-doo, and cross-border mobility, which is basically just saying, yes, we want to get the world moving again. I mean, there's nothing controversial on the surface about those. But it's a part of them inserting themselves into this agenda. It's literally called the Davos agenda. Inserting themselves into this agenda that doesn't actually care about the independence of nations, that actually rebukes it. The United Kingdom, by leaving the European Union, actually struck a blow against this narrative that is unfolding, a, a world beyond and, be, uh, and moving past nation-states, a world in which every country's interests have to be subservient to the global order, to the global interests. And it's not that we're heading towards one world government, it's that individual countries are increasingly interested in surrendering their own sovereignty to just do whatever the UN wants. 
And Justin Trudeau has these idealistic delusions, these delusions that, by the way, were disproven going as far back as like Woodrow Wilson in the uh, early parts of the 20th century. And Justin Trudeau wants to just completely outsource all decision making to the UN, to the World Health Organization. So no wonder Chairman Xi is happy with the world order because the world order is the one that gave the WHO that refused to actually look at China's role in unleashing the COVID-19 pandemic. It's the world order that's allowing China to become such a powerhouse. The world order that is happy when Chairman Xi gets up there and talks about the Paris climate agreements while, on the other, on the other hand, uh, actually committing genocide against Uyghur minorities and having labor camps and state executions. That Chairman Xi was not criticized. But oh, no, 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 to Klaus Schwab, it's all great because, yeah, he shares our goals of a world that's moving forward, leaping into progress, because if there is a one world government or even a de facto one world government, it's going to be China that's at the helm of that. We are going to be covering this more and more. In fact, in May, the World Economic Forum is planning to have an in-person summit in Singapore, which they'd normally have, again, this week in Davos, but everything's a little bit wacky this year. And I actually hope to be there covering this because we know that a lot of the benefits to the world leaders that go to these things are not the official sessions, but all the meetings that take place away from the cameras. And that's what we aim to see. So, But we're getting a little bit of a taste of it by watching the Zoom version of the Davos agenda this week. The agenda that is being uh, written for or you under the auspices of a great reset, but oh no, it's just a conspiracy. We'll be back in a couple of moments with more of the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to the Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to the Andrew Lawton Show. I want to talk about a story that actually emerged in my neck of the woods down in southwestern Ontario over the weekend that has become a national story. It involves one of the youngest COVID-19 deaths in the country, the death of a young man, 19, named Yassine DeBay, who was a contract cleaner at a long-term care home near London. Now, I say a COVID-19 death. It's not actually known how Yassine Debay died. And in fact, according to the local health officials, it will never truly be known. There was no autopsy. All they know is that four weeks ago, he contracted COVID-19, recovered from it, but he's still classed as a COVID death because COVID-19 was in his chart, so to speak. Now, this is tragic no matter what, and I actually don't like talking about this because I don't like that this has to be put through a political lens. But I also was seeing how this man's death was being taken and made into a political statement by so many people, and I had to push back against it. The fact is, we don't know how he died. We never will know how he died, given the way they report these things and what the health unit has said. But this is how it was reported. Just take a look at the beginning of this clip from CTV London. Yassine Taab is the first person under 20 in Ontario to die from COVID-19. The 19-year-old passed away Thursday in South London. And of course, that old line about how a lie has gone around the world before the truth has put its pants on is very much the case. I'm going to go rapid fire here. Catherine McKenna says, very sad to hear about Yassine DeBay, a frontline LTC worker who passed due to COVID. Another Liberal MP, Sven Spenjamin, says, My deepest condolences to the family and loved ones of Yassine DeBay. He passed away on Thursday from COVID-19. Andre Picard, very well-known and very well-respected health columnist for the Globe and Mail, said Yassine DeBay died of COVID-19. A CBC headline, Ontario teen who died of COVID-19 was refugee who worked as a long-term care home cleaner. 
Unifor says he died of COVID-19. A London city councillor says it was actually anti-mask protesters that were to blame. And an Ontario MPP by the name of Rima Burns-McGowan says that this is actually Doug Ford's fault. Doug Ford and the long-term care minister, Marilee Fullerton, are personally responsible for killing this young man, even though no one knows how he died and there was no autopsy. And he was past the point of being infectious. And it's not clear whether he was in hospital for any prolonged period of time with COVID-19. Now, as I said on Twitter, none of this takes away from the tragedy of a 19-year-old dying. It's far too young. But facts still matter. And this man's being made into a martyr for people that have an axe to grind on refugee politics, on long-term care, people that want to instill a great deal of fear in the population about how COVID-19 can affect anyone and everyone, and your 19-year-olds aren't safe, and we got to keep kids out of classrooms, when in actuality, this is a tragedy, but it is not a tragedy that speaks to a broader narrative unless people make it speak to a broader narrative. Now, Yassine's family, who again has suffered a terrible loss here, has said that a coroner confirmed from a blood test that he died of COVID-19. Now, I don't know how that works out. And again, I have no reason to distrust the family. There is still the comment from the local health unit, the official that said there is basically no answer that can be given to a lot of these questions. But the whole point is... Even with this, at the time that all of these people were saying what they were saying, when Catherine McKenna was saying died of COVID, Andre Picard, when all of these people were misplacing those very significant prepositions, it simply wasn't known. And in many cases, it still isn't known, which is why the data collection issue here is such an important one that needs to be rectified. We've got to take a break. We'll be back with more of The Andrew Lawton Show in just a moment. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. We know that Justin Trudeau's government loves to pontificate on the importance of press freedom and free speech. They host these big, uh, fancy conferences where they promote the virtues of free speech and say that Canada is a beacon of hope on press freedom. Well, a journalist is being charged for writing a book about Justin Trudeau. You may have heard this story right now. The rebel commander himself and author of the Lebrano's Ezra Levant posted a, a fantastic video not that long ago of his interrogation by two investigators with the Commissioner of Canada elections. It appears that investigation has come to an end and Ezra owes the government $3,000 for the crime of writing a book. Ezra joins me on the line. Ezra, good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So $3,000, this is the going rate, apparently, for writing a book that criticizes Justin Trudeau during an election. Yeah, they say it's a violation of the Canada Elections Act. They say that my book, because, and, and by the way, they spent a lot of time going through this part in their violation notice to me. Uh, they say that because I compare uh, the liberals to The Sopranos. Remember, the title of my book was The Libranos. So, so they really go on at length about how that's mean, how that compares the liberals to a corrupt group of lawbreakers. And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. Anyways, they say because it's mean, that is tantamount to a campaign ad. And because we sold so many books during the election, that's an illegal campaign activity. Except for two things. First of all, Section 2 of that same Canada Elections Act specifically exempts books 
and the promotion of books, as long as they're sold at a reasonable price, and I think my book was sold for 15 bucks, which was probably a little bit high, in fact. And um, it applies to the promotion of books, too. So we had billboards and lawn signs and videos and internet ads. Like We had about five different ways, and they all use that language, the Libranos. So it's exempt. Section 2 of the Act says it's exempt. Even if Section 2 of the Act didn't say so, we have centuries of common law and our Chart of Rights and our Bill of Rights, which protects political speech, freedom of the press. So there's no way that my book is illegal. We don't have illegal books in Canada. Let me throw one last thing at you, Andrew. There were 23 other books published at the same time in the 2019 election about Justin Trudeau. So mine was one of 24 in total. The other 23 were either sort of wishy-washy or extremely pro-Trudeau. For example, there was a book written by the CBC's Aaron Wary, total love letter to Trudeau. So you could say that's a campaign ad for Trudeau, except of course it's a book, so it's exempt. The police who interrogated me, they were 30-year veterans of the RCMP, they told me. They're working for Elections Canada now. They said they were aware of these 23 other books, but mine was the only one they were investigating. And I said, how's that? You know, isn't that proof of what's going on there? And they actually said to me, well, you can complain about them. No, I'm not a censor. I'm not this crazy book burner. But they admitted, I'm the only book they're prosecuting. And by the way, I'm the only book that criticized Trudeau. That's a really bad look for a G7 country. Not that it matters in the grand scheme of things, given the implications of this charge that you've had leveled against you, but was it just the ads that you were charged for, the posters, the signs, the billboards, or was it those as well as the book itself? You know, I'd have to look at the exact wording. I don't have the violation in front of me, but the but it, they specifically mentioned the image. Uh, we had an artist. Uh, I don't know, for those, I mean, the Sopranos... Um, a lot of the kids these days don't know what that is, but for people in their 30s and 40s, they might recall that show, The Sopranos. It's about 20 years old now. They had this promotional poster that showed Tony Soprano and his Soprano family looking a little very menacing. So mm -hmm. we, the book cover of The Sopranos was a, an homage to that. It had Trudeau and his henchman. Bill Morneau was in it, Catherine McKenna. It was a total spoof. I guess you only really got it if he understood the original Sopranos thing. So it's probably a bit of a dated reference now. But they, so what was on the billboards was exactly what was on the cover. It was, we used the same artwork. The only thing is our ads had three words on them by the book. So they, uh, you, you know, it was just the cover mm -hmm. of the book that said by the book. Um, those were, uh, found in violation. I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me, but you can read the violation for yourself. Uh, we put them on the internet at saverebelnews.com so folks can read it. Um, you can also see my interrogation at the hands of these officers. Mm -hmm. Can I throw one more wrinkle at you? And I thought this was crazy. Uh, when I was being interrogated with, and this was a year ago, 
they asked me to go to their high security headquarters in Gatineau, Quebec, so I did. And then I, but I didn't tell them I was recording them because I knew no one would believe me. I didn't know what they were going to say, but I knew it would be so crazy that no one would believe me if I didn't film it. So I went in there with a hidden camera. That's the only time I've ever done that in my life. I was very nervous about it, uh, but it worked. Cause, not nervous to do it. I was nervous that the camera wouldn't work, but it worked <laughs> great. And you can see in that videotape, and we have that on that page, SaveRebelNews.com, I asked the cops, I said, I've come all the way to Gatineau, Quebec to, to meet you. I've come here voluntarily. I didn't tell them I came to record them also. I said, I've come here to meet the complaint, but you haven't shown me the complaint yet. Can I see the actual complaint that started this whole thing? Can you tell me who complained? And they said, no. They refused to show me the complaint. They refused to tell me who the complainant was. I mm -hmm. said, how can I meet? A I've come all the way to Gatineau. Yeah, I'm you here. have a right to face your accuser, except you don't in this proceeding. Yeah, and to this day, that was a year ago, remember, so they convicted me now. They still haven't shown me the complaint or told me who the complainant is. And, the, and I know this is just one more level of crazy. They didn't actually invite me to their hearing or trial or whatever it was. The last interaction I had with them was a year ago. Um, they, so they investigated me, they interrogated me or whatever. And then there was no hearing. There was no time to come and present an argument. They knew I had a law firm because I had my law firm talk to them about a few things. Um, so they knew who I was. They knew how to get in touch with me. They knew who my lawyer was and how to get in touch with them. But they didn't tell either me or my lawyers there was going to be a hearing or a panel. I don't even know. Maybe, maybe it was just one guy who said he's guilty. They, we weren't invited to that. We didn't know how that it was. They, we weren't even invited to make written submissions. We were just told out of the blue that we were convicted and fined. Um, it's absurd. Obviously, we're appealing and we're going to challenge the underlying constitutionality of this law. And I think that this, the fact that they're doing, I think it's absurd. I think it looks really bad on them. But the fact they're proceeding nonetheless tells me we're in a new era, Andrew, where shame and our cultural memory of being a free place no longer carries weight. And it's been a few days since I rang the alarm about this. And other than you and one of your colleagues at True North, I don't think I've seen any coverage of this in the Canadian media. And I think it's because I'm conservative, I'm a bit of a troublemaker, a gadfly, some would say. So either out of personal distaste for me or political disagreement with me, the fancy people, the intellectual class, have decided, all right, we're fine with an author being convicted in absentia. We're fine with an author being hit with $3,000 in penalties. Well, because they know their worldview insulates them from this, and, and that's the big danger of this. It used to be back in the era of the Human Rights Commission fights that there was a, a principled response from journalists because they understood the broader implications of, of what was happening. And I, I do have to ask you about that battle because I, I recall one of the big shortcomings in people that support free speech's ability to fight against the Human Rights Commissions is that it wasn't really happening in a real courtroom. And very similar to what's happening here. This is a, a hearing that takes place behind closed doors. It might not have even been a hearing. Do you have the ability under this law to fight this in a, a real court? Well, you know, I, I gave it to our lawyers and I asked them to look at the appeal. 
and um, it will eventually get to a real court. Uh, I think the first appeal, believe it or not, is within Elections Canada. Of course. Don't hold me to that. I, I, a body so that busy. has served you so well up until this point in yeah. this investigation. Yeah, so we'll probably lose that one too. I don't know. Um, but we're, I've, I've told the lawyers, it's the same lawyers that, that argued for Rebel News alongside you and your lawyers at the Federal Court of Canada to get into the election debates. So we've got great free speech lawyers, Aaron Rosenberg, David Emelet. They, they were with you mm-hmm. when, when you won that free speech battle. So these are the same guys I'm using. Don't mess with success. These guys got it. So I said to them, appeal this finding, but also challenge the underlying law. Because look, if we don't do it, who will? Um, I, when I was a younger man, let's say 25 years ago, I recall, when I was just learning about the law and things like that, I, I recall there was a tradition amongst Canadian media companies to hire a free speech lawyer, like a top gun, send him to court whenever there was a free speech battle. And this one excellent free speech lawyer, and it would be different on different cases, would represent all the media. So mm-hmm. a lawyer would show up in court and say, Your Yeah, Honor, there was a consortium mindset. The consortium, that's what they would call everyone it. Everyone realized they were all in it together. That's right. So the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, the, uh, the Toronto Sun, uh, all the newspapers, all the TV stations, they'd chip in like a thousand bucks each. And together, that would maybe give them 20 grand. So they'd send a top gun into court and say, Your Honor, I'm here to represent every single newspaper and TV station, radio station in this country. Here's the list of them all, because this is a grave threat to all of us. And even though we may not like this guy, we may not know this guy, the principle is so large and important, we're here. I haven't seen that done in at least a decade. Mm -hmm. And because there's so many newspapers and TV stations, it's not a money issue. I think it's, uh, they have been tamed and trained and they're submissive now. I think they're all on the payroll of Justin Trudeau's media bailout. They're all ideologically uh, fused and merged with the government. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association is absent without leave. Uh, It really is a tiny handful. The Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, they're fighting hard. And I think I've just gone through the whole list by mentioning them. There is the the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I saw they were doing some stuff. But really, there's nobody. And it's really weird that we have to spend what will probably be 100 grand fighting this. You, I mean, a normal human being would say, just pay the three grand. Mm-hmm. Why would you pay or just register your book? But they you have to. You, you have this. to. You can't die on the on. I mean, you you have to fight on these hills though, be, because it is going to hamper your ability to write a book in the next election, whenever that comes, and and so on. But I, I do have to ask because I know that you're fighting the underlying law as well, and I, I'm glad you are because that act that exempts advertising of, of books specifically also has a, a caveat there, which I understand they're using against you, which is that that only applies if the book were going to be published regardless of, of whether or not there were an election. Right. And now, personally, I don't think that should matter. I, I think if you're in in any sort of world of publishing, you don't want to publish something when it's going to have less of an impact. So if you're writing a book that has to do with an election, you're going to publish it around the time of an election. It's the same as how in the media, people hold on to scoops until after weekends or, or after holidays. But this is a book that you would have written regardless, isn't it? Yeah, you know what? I, I'm glad you mentioned that. So, so section two of this law says uh, books are exempt 
The promotion of books are exempt if, number one, it's sold at a reasonable price, and ours was, and number two, the book would have been published whether or not there was an election. That last part doesn't even make sense, because of course there's going to be an election. And if there's <laughs> not going to be an election, well, then we are in grave danger indeed. Um, <laughs> Uh, and that's not even a joke anymore. They've delayed elections in New Zealand. They've delayed elections in the United Kingdom using the COVID emergency as an excuse. So it's not even unthinkable that elections would be delayed. That that wording doesn't even make any sense. Um, I was asked by these cops, did you time the release of the book for the election? I said, of course, because it's about the election. You don't, there were probably, I'm going to guess, 500 maybe more books about Donald Trump, probably 500, including sort of small publishers. Like the Trump book industry, Trump saved the book industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about all the <laughs> Trump books. Um, none of them waited till November the 4th to be published. That would be really weird. All of them were published pretty much after Labor Day because they wanted to sell books when people were paying attention to the election. Election was in its final moments. So, of course my book was published on the eve of the election. Same thing with the other 23 books about Trudeau. Yes. It would have been really, really weird to publish a book about Trudeau and the election after the election. Then it's all moot. It's all obsolete. And if they're trying to make that against the law, I mean, by the way, if they are saying that's against the law, well, then all 24 books are against the law. Um, it's normal to publish a book during a campaign. The wording of the law is so weird whether or not there's an election. Well, if there was no election in Canada, you're darn straight I would publish that book. Yeah, that and it's more than books we need price. to be doing at that point. <laughs> All yeah. right, well, we, we wish you the best in this. Please do keep us updated. Ezra Levant, the rebel commander and author of the now-banned book, effectively, The Libranos. Ezra, thanks very much for coming on today. Thanks, Andrew. That was, of course, Ezra Levant, and you can get all the details at rebelnews.com. And that does it for me for today. We'll be back in just a few days with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.